Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast contains descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. It's Monday, the 1st of January, 1900. Happy New Year, and if not technically Happy New Century, at least indisputably the start of the 1900s. This New Year's Day is special for another reason too, because it's exactly one year until Federation and the birth of the Commonwealth of Australia. Fittingly, it's on this day that newspapers report that in London our first Governor-General has been selected. He's to be John Campbell, the Marquis of Lorne, husband to the Princess Louise and son-in-law to Queen Victoria. That's a jolly good show, having a royal couple resident down under, even if it actually won't come to pass and it'll be Lord Hopetown who gets the job. But what really is and will continue to strengthen the bonds of empire and foster the sense that Australia is taking its place in the world is our recent commitment of brave bushmen to fight for Britain against the Boers in South Africa. All Australian colonies have contributed volunteers who are right now doing their duty on that far-off battlefield. Today's newspapers contain pages and pages of reports from the conflict. Australian soldiers' letters, though posted months ago, give first-hand accounts of the war. And our great poet, Banjo Patterson, is there with the troops, and his more recent articles also regularly grace the pages of the Sydney Morning Herald and the Sydney Mail. As glorious as the distant Boer War is, so too is Sydney glorious on this summer's day. It's sunny, but not too hot, and thousands of people are pouring out of their homes and onto trams and buses to make the most of this day off from work and free from care. Some people take their luncheon at the zoological gardens at Moore Park, where they marvel at the wild man of the woods, also known as the orangutan of Borneo, and thrill as keepers feed the lions, tigers and pumas that are kept crammed in cages. 
A little south of the city, opposite Redfern Station, the Cyclorama offers magic mirth, mystery and marvellous realism with its huge series of panoramic paintings of Jerusalem at the time of Christ. But on this splendid day, it's the harbour and beaches that are by far the biggest attractions. The ferries are packed with families, groups of young people and cooing couples who are all heading from Circular Quay to Manly, Middle Harbour, Watson's Bay and other waterside locations to play and to picnic. Sydney offers so many diversions on this bright sunshiny day, yet it's likely none can fully distract Dr Ashburton Thompson from the darkness that he knows is coming over the horizon to sail right up the harbour and into the centre of the city. A press cablegram just before Christmas announced the terrible news that Numea was infected with the bubonic plague. Dr Ashburton's own private inquiries have subsequently confirmed this and now this man, who's president of the New South Wales Board of Health and thus the colony's chief medical officer, is certain of one thing, that the Black Death is on its way to Australia and its first port of call is almost certainly going to be Sydney. Mail steamers, cargo ships and pleasure yachts all regularly traverse the 1,000 miles of South Pacific waters between Numea and Sydney. It's a voyage that can be done in just three days. And given that bubonic plague's incubation period is about double that, infected people can now reach Sydney before showing any symptoms. Since the news came from Numea, it has been officially decreed in Sydney and in other colonial capitals that vessels from New Caledonia will be quarantined so that people aboard can be monitored and disinfecting operations carried out. But Dr Ashburton Thompson, who at 54 years of age is a specialist in infectious diseases, knows full well that quarantines aren't perfect. The world's plague-infected cities Hong Kong, Bombay, Calcutta, Mecca, Jeddah, San Francisco, Honolulu and others that now include Numea all had quarantines in place. They slowed the spread of bubonic plague, but they failed to stop it. Dr Thompson knows that this is in Sydney's future too. And in fact, this very day, he's reported saying as much in the Australian Star newspaper. But its article... Headline, if the plague came to Sydney, where death would stalk, a visit to George Street North is more concerned with providing a lengthy denunciation of Circular Quay and the rocks as imminent dying grounds than it is with providing useful scientifically backed health information. Ground zero for the outbreak, the article says, will be Chinese and poor whites who live in these areas because their filthy and crowded conditions cause them to breathe each other's noxious fumes day and night. The alarmist Australian star, deeply hostile to the immigrant and to the impoverished, argues there's only one solution. Demolish these slums. What the article doesn't mention at all are the rats. Rats that don't obey quarantine rules. Rats that can hide almost anywhere. Rats that thrive where sanitation is lacking. Rats that can and will flee from demolition work. Rats that Dr Thompson is sure are the true vectors of the plague. Rats he told the Australian Star about just two days ago. Quote, I would advise everybody to begin killing rats. These little pests are good disease carriers and they exist in tremendous numbers in Sydney, not only houses and sewers, but they may be seen at different places on the foreshores of the harbour. 
All experience shows that a wholesale destruction of rats would be a very wise step. The Australian star seems to have forgotten those words already because today they're simply pointing the finger at the Chinese and the poor and harking back to discredited notions about dirty people and their effluvial air in so-called slums being responsible for plague outbreaks. Until there's actually an outbreak and people start dying, it seems few will take the science seriously and even fewer will act to reduce the risk of its spread. But when it hits, as it surely must, it's going to be up to Dr. Thompson to coordinate the defence of the city, the colony, and by extension, the country. For the moment, though, all he can do is wait and watch. Wait and watch for reports of unusual illnesses. Wait and watch for that other telltale sign seen in plague ports. Rat corpses piling up on wharves as the rodents die from the disease they carry and spread to humans via the agency of fleas. While he waits and watches, what Dr. Thompson doesn't know on this New Year's Day, 1900, is that 850 miles away at Adelaide Hospital, his South Australian counterparts are already dealing with what they suspect is the country's first case of the Black Death. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part one of the two-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Plague of 1900. Caused by the bacteria Yersinia pestis, the first pandemic of bubonic plague erupted in the mid-6th century during the reign of Roman Emperor Justinian. Historians disagree over how deadly it was at its peak and the two centuries in which it raged. Lower estimates say it carried off 25 million people, while the upper death estimate is 100 million people, which would have been about half Europe's population. The second pandemic, the one that we now refer to as the Black Death, started in the mid-1300s. Again, it centred on Europe, though Asia and Africa were also devastated. And again, the estimated death toll varies from 75 million to 200 million people. A mid-range figure represents about 20% of the world's entire population, and perhaps as many as 60% of Europeans. Whatever the actual figure, the Black Death's huge death toll is credited with reshaping Europe's economy, its culture, and its social structure. It sped out serfdom, ushered in the Renaissance, and turned people's minds to science as they hoped for a cure. In retrospect, the impact was world historic, but it was just horrific for those who lived through it. There was horror at the rapid onset of symptoms. High fever, blinding headaches, abdominal pain, vomiting and diarrhoea. There was horror at what came next, the swelling of lymph nodes in the neck, groin and armpits into buboes as big as eggs that, oozing blood and pus, turned red and then black. There was horror in the knowledge that four out of five family members and friends who got sick would die. There was horror in knowing that many of these loved ones would die in a feverish delirium as the glandular swellings flooded their bodies with toxins causing massive hemorrhaging that turned the skin black. There was horror in knowing that they'd disappear with dozens or even hundreds of others into mass unmarked graves. And there was horror knowing there was every chance you'd soon join them. From that point on, the Black Death, no known cause, no known cure, burned itself into our collective consciousness as the nightmare disease. 
it returned with what became known as the third pandemic, thought to have started in China in 1855, though it remained localised for decades. By 1894, though, it had reached a major port, Hong Kong, where it killed some 2,000 people in six months. Gradually, over the rest of the decade, the invisible enemy sailed and steamed from Hong Kong to other parts of Asia, to the east coast of America, Egypt, India, the Middle East, South Africa, South America and Southern Europe. Though the Black Death was spreading again, there was at last hope in terms of identifying what caused it and preventing people from becoming infected. In 1897, French scientist Paul-Louis Simon described fleas from plague rats as being the carriers of the disease. That same year in India, the Ukrainian-born microbiologist Waldemar Hafkin developed an effective vaccine. During the second half of the 1890s, ships regularly came to Australia from Hong Kong and from the increasing number of plague ports. What provided protection for Australia was that these were lengthy sea voyages. An infected person would develop symptoms long before reaching Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane or other colonial capitals and could be put into quarantine. Yet even this hadn't been necessary because since the Hong Kong outbreak, no plague ship had arrived down under. Now, with Numea infected, that run of good luck would almost certainly end. Or perhaps it had already ended. Dr. Ashburton Thompson knew that plague had to have been circulating in Numea for some time before it was detected and then officially declared. What really gave him pause was that since the end of October, long before quarantine was required, five steamers from Numea had docked just at Darling Harbour alone. Even the most recent steamer from Numea, the French vessel Pacifique, had spent a few days berthed in the city before being ordered to the maritime quarantine station at North Head. The Pacific had been declared plague-free and was being released on New Year's Day. The same thing was happening that day in Port Adelaide, where the French mail steamer Australian, also from Numea, was being released from quarantine on Torrens Island. While these two ship quarantines and releases had been reported publicly, what wouldn't be known for the next two weeks was that on that very same day, New Year's Day, at Adelaide Hospital, doctors had admitted a man who appeared to be suffering from the bubonic plague. William Epstein told people he'd been born in Norway around 1881 and lived in Germany and America before taking to the sea. On the 30th of July 1899, William was a crew member aboard the cargo ship Formosa when it sailed out of New York Harbour. This bark was bound for far distant Adelaide. Two months into the voyage, the Formosa was hit by a hurricane and then endured weeks and weeks of sleet, snow and storms that left the ship damaged and taking water. Understandably, the crew feared for their lives. So, when they reached Port Adelaide, alive and in one piece, on the 12th of November 1899, it seemed like a miracle. You couldn't really blame some of them for legging it as soon as they stepped onto terra firma. And William Epstein was one of these absconders. With nothing more to his name than his raggedy clothes and a swag comprising a single lice-ridden blanket, William rambled north in search of work that was less dangerous and better paid than being a ship's mate on the open ocean. He wound up at the wonderfully named Humbug Scrub, a remote patch of trackless bush near Gawler, some 40 miles from Adelaide. 
There, William got a job as a wattle stripper, and for five weeks, he shared a 10 by 8 iron bush hut with a co-worker named Wren. Wren didn't find this foreigner easy to be around. William refused to wash himself or his clothes, and he had odd habits, such as drinking copious amounts of water, but eating very little. Even so, he was a good worker, at least for the first month, until he got sick. On the 21st of December, William complained of headaches, of nausea, and of a weakness in his legs. These symptoms didn't abate, and on the 29th of December, Wren got his strange workmate into Gawler to see a doctor. By then, William was vomiting and had a swelling beneath his chin. Abandoned in Gawler, he lived rough, sleeping in the yard of the Exchange Hotel, whose proprietor believed that this poor, dirty man was mentally deranged. The doctor saw him again on New Year's Eve and ordered William to go to Adelaide Hospital. After William Epstein was admitted at 9 o'clock in the morning on New Year's Day, his lice-ridden swag having been immediately incinerated, he came under the care of Dr. Donald MacDonald. The hospital's resident medical officer, Dr. MacDonald, had extensive experience with bubonic plague. He'd worked in Hong Kong, was reported to have carried out 300 post-mortems on plague victims, had studied the disease at a microbiological level, and was a firm believer in the science of rat transmission. Now, what he saw in William Epstein had him worried. Dr. MacDonald alerted Dr. Ramsey Smith, chairman of South Australia's Central Board of Health, and under his instruction, police interviewed the captain of the Bark Formosa. Producing his ship's logs, the skipper explained that the Formosa hadn't touched land between New York and Adelaide. That said, while at sea, he had pulled the Formosa close to other ships in order to communicate and had also for a prolonged time stood side by side with another ship that had been in distress. The Formosa skipper told the police that Epstein and a handful of other crew members had been sick with stomach troubles during the voyage, but their complaints had been so minor they didn't even warrant entry into the ship's log. The skipper did confirm, however, that Epstein had been filthy in his habits. At Adelaide Hospital, the suffering sailor-turned-wattle-stripper was kept in a tented shed away from other patients. Dr. MacDonald was almost certain that Epstein had bubonic plague, even if he wasn't exhibiting all of the most obvious symptoms. Dr. MacDonald and Dr. Smith kept their suspicions from the public and from their intercolonial counterparts. They wouldn't announce anything officially until they were certain. They'd later justify this by saying that any premature announcement would have been irresponsible because it could have created a panic and damaged the colony's economy. Confirmation of bubonic plague would only be possible, Dr. MacDonald believed, by doing a post-mortem examination on Epstein, with this opportunity looking increasingly likely as the man's condition worsened. Then, on the 5th of January, a nine-year-old boy named Philip McCann was admitted to Adelaide Hospital with what was at first thought to be typhoid fever. Young Philip was from Gawler, and Dr. MacDonald soon thought that he was also suffering bubonic plague and that he'd somehow been infected by Epstein. On Friday, the 12th of January, 1900, William Epstein died in Adelaide Hospital. Fifteen minutes later, his body wasn't even cold when Dr. MacDonald began the post-mortem. 
He forwarded tissue and blood samples to Dr. Smith, and together, these Adelaide medical experts concluded that what they saw was highly characteristic of bubonic plague. With that settled, as far as they were concerned, Dr. Smith now issued instructions about the disposal of Epstein. The body was to be put in a shroud soaked in disinfectant. This was then to be contained in waterproof material, then submerged in a coffin filled with disinfectant. The coffin was then to be put inside another strong wooden box and taken to a pier where it would be towed by launch to Torrens Island Quarantine Station. William Epstein was to be buried at least eight feet deep. The boat and conveyances that had been used to move him were to be disinfected, his bedding and other medical materials connected with the man were to be incinerated, and everyone who'd been caring for him was to be quarantined. All of that happened the same afternoon that Epstein died. Meanwhile, the boy, Philip McCann, was also moved to the quarantine station. It had been nearly two weeks since Epstein had been admitted to hospital, and in that time, suspicions about his condition, his deterioration, and his death had all been kept secret. The first inkling that the good folk of Adelaide had that anything was wrong came on Saturday the 13th of July, when the gates of Adelaide Hospital were inexplicably closed. The next day, a sign was hung to say the institution had been shut to visitors because it was in quarantine. Shortly after that, a police guard was posted at these gates. It wasn't until the next day, Monday the 15th of January, two weeks after William Epstein had been admitted to hospital, that news that bubonic plague had hit Australia was conveyed from Adelaide to the other colonial capitals. Then came reports that two Adelaide hospital nurses with glandular swelling had gone into quarantine out of an abundance of caution. This was rapidly followed by news that dead rats had been found in the hospital grounds and that these rodents were infected with the plague. Rumours arose that the hospital had been conducting secret experiments on the bacillus. Those experiments had resulted in sick rats escaping, and these rodents had then infected poor old Epstein, who'd been admitted to the hospital with another illness, but who'd been made more vulnerable to plague by his filthy condition. It was all a lot to swallow, and in Sydney, Dr Ashburton Thompson remained sceptical about everything coming out of Adelaide. As he'd later report to the New South Wales colonial government about the South Australian outbreak, quote, The detailed accounts, when they came to hand, hardly portrayed plague under its clinical or its epidemiological aspects. They lacked adequate bacteriological data, and they contained statements which were unexpected and strange in connection with plague. The rumour, which from the first had been regarded with doubt, was ultimately discredited. Dr Ashburton Thompson didn't believe that William Epstein had died of the plague. As for Philip McCann, he might have had typhoid fever. Gawler was then a typhoid hotspot, both of his parents had had it in the past year, and in any event, the boy made a full and rapid recovery. Despite Dr Thompson's scepticism, what mattered in terms of public opinion was that Australian newspaper readers, politicians, medical men, bureaucrats and mere mortals now believed that the Black Death had arrived in Australia. But at Sydney's busy Darling Harbour waterfront, it was business as usual for the hundreds of men who toiled loading and unloading ships from other colonies and other countries. Arthur Payne was employed as a van driver by the Central Wharf Company. 
His job was to transport exports from city warehouses to the wharf, either to the sides of ships or to his boss's warehouse. He was 33, slight but muscular, and he lived in a two-storey house in the rocks with his wife, three young children, a servant girl and her sister. For the past few months, Arthur had been carting wool, and this gave him no reason at all to visit other wharves or to ever board ships. Saturday the 19th of January 1900 was a hot day. Arthur Payne was taking his horse-drawn lorry through the city streets when he was suddenly overcome with giddiness and seized by a terrible headache. Getting to the wharf warehouse, he was racked with abdominal pain and had to lay down for a while. Valiantly, Arthur struggled through to the end of the workday, even though by four that afternoon he had pain near his left groin and he'd found a lump that hadn't been there earlier. Arthur went home and spent that night in agony. He had fever, stomach pains, headache, and everything inside him wanted to get out via both ends. That lump in his left groin throbbed painfully. Arthur Payne was seen by a doctor at 2pm on Sunday, by which time he had a fever of 104.9 degrees Fahrenheit, and his erratic pulse was sometimes soaring into dangerous territory. The gland in his left groin was still swollen, but only the size of an almond. Within a day, though, it was the size of a small mandarin. Another doctor was summoned, and because this man was on alert thanks to the Adelaide bubonic plague scare, he contacted the Board of Health. Dr. Thompson paid Arthur a visit at his house on the third day of his illness. His fever and pain were fluctuating, and he seemed in good spirits. Near Arthur's left Achilles tendon, Dr. Thompson found what he was looking for, a tiny puncture mark that he was almost sure was a flea bite. Dr. Thompson reported that the pain house was neat and clean. But inspections found that the house's sewer pipe had a hole in it, meaning that rats and the fleas on them could get access to the home. The house was also close to numerous wharf warehouses that were rat infested. Fluid samples were taken from Arthur's swollen gland. They'd be used to cultivate bacillus for experiments that could confirm this was bubonic plague. In the interim, on the 24th of January, Dr Thompson decided that New South Wales had to proceed as though those results were already in and were positive. Arthur Payne, his wife, three children, the servant girl and her sister were all confined to the house under police guard while a special meeting of the Board of Health was held and Dr Thompson consulted with Premier William Lyne. That afternoon, Arthur was taken by horse-drawn ambulance to the quarantine depot at Woolamaloo Bay. Another conveyance brought the other members of the household. They were all then taken to Sydney's Maritime Quarantine Station at North Head. The following day, four people known to have been in close contact with Arthur were also taken to the quarantine station. Dr Thompson spoke to the press to tell them that Arthur's case was so mild it might have gone unreported to the Board of Health if not for the newspaper coverage of the scare in Adelaide. He told the Sydney Morning Herald, quote, Indeed, if you saw the patient now, you would hardly think there anything the matter with him. Of course, it may not be a case of plague. The disease is not always well defined. Dr Thompson reassured that bubonic plague, if it should prove to be that, was not as easily transmitted as popularly believed and was far more manageable than scarlet fever and typhoid. And he again used the newspapers to try to get the message through about rats. Quote, 
A good deal has been said about rats communicating the disease. They undoubtedly do so. That may account for the disease spreading irregularly. It will appear in one street and miss another street close by. At the same time, it has for a long time been a puzzle to know how rats communicate the disease to man. As the result of constant observation, there seems to be very little doubt indeed that the infection is conveyed from rats to man by the intermediary agency of fleas and other like insects. Sydney's Daily Telegraph reported what he said about the best defences. Quote, Cleansing a neighbourhood, Dr Thompson points out, may have the ultimate effect of driving rats into another district and so distributing the infected rodents over a wider area. Such measures as whitewashing houses and cleansing gutters and sewers have not really the slightest effect in allaying the spread of the plague. Here the Daily Telegraph quoted the doctor directly. That is a hard saying for the public, but still, it is a scientific fact. The article continued. To minimise the danger from rats, it is necessary for householders to gather up all the scraps on which they would be likely to feed. Nevertheless, people who live in decently built and well-kept houses have not much to fear from rats, and for the same reason, not much to fear from the plague. If any dead rats are found about the premises, boiling water should be first thrown over the carcass to kill any fleas. Then the rats can be destroyed without danger. While Dr Thompson had reassured readers of both the Sydney Morning Herald and the Daily Telegraph that proximity to a sufferer and his or her clothes and other items were only vectors of transmission in severe cases, his board of health was nevertheless taking no chances. The doctors who'd first seen Arthur, board of health workers, laboratory staff and others were all given shots of Professor Hafkeen's vaccine from the limited supply Sydney had so far procured. The vehicles that had been used to take Arthur and his people from the house and to the quarantine station were disinfected. So too was his house in the rocks, which was treated with burning sulphur and then washed down. The Payne family's smaller possessions were boiled on the spot. Other items were taken away for steam disinfection. Wallpapers were removed, rubbish was burned, woodwork was painted, ceilings whitewashed, new wallpaper hung and the sewerage defects repaired. What the Board of Health workers didn't find were any dead rats. Dr. Thompson's microbiologist was soon killing mice and guinea pigs with bacillus that had been cultivated from Arthur's swollen gland. Observations of their rapid sickness and swift deaths, coupled with post-mortem examinations, confirmed it beyond all doubt. The bubonic plague had arrived in Sydney. You might read in some books that Arthur Payne, Australia's confirmed patient zero, was also Australia's first confirmed death from the plague. But that's not true. Arthur was lucky, though his case was unpleasant and very painful, it was also pretty mild. Two days after he got to the maritime quarantine station, his temperature was normal, he had his appetite back and he was sleeping well. None of his family or friends were sick and they were released from the quarantine station on the 10th day of his illness. Two days after that, Arthur's groin had returned to normal and he'd be back home by mid-February. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
Dr. Thompson had known in the first few days that Arthur Payne wasn't in danger of dying. But the next person to be bitten by a carrier flea might not be so lucky. What Dr. Thompson needed to know was where the enemy was. So on the 24th of January, the same day that Arthur was sent to the quarantine station, Dr. Thompson wrote to Sydney's town clerk to ask that the council's workers watch for any unusual rat deaths or migrations. Dr. Thompson also took out newspaper advertisements asking for such information from the public. With bubonic news stories spreading, he wasn't the only one advertising. The sellers of Vitadacio, a quack remedy touted as the greatest blood purifier on earth, had already adjusted their newspaper campaign. On the 26th of January, their ads read, quote, The bubonic plague is at your door. Be warned in time. Few escape from its deadly grip once seized. The plague is a microbe which readily enters impure blood, but pure blood it will not touch. The surest preventative is the wonderful herbal blood purifier, Vitadacio, it will save you. Take it, purify your blood and clothe yourself in an impregnable suit of mail if the enemy should come. It's not known how many extra bottles of this herbal juice were sold as a result of this campaign, but Dr. Thompson's ad was a bust in terms of getting responses from the public. A fruit inspector who worked the wharves had noticed dead rats at the central wharf where Arthur Payne worked back in mid-January, but he didn't think to report it at the time or once the ads had run. It wasn't until the 14th of February that a customs department officer reported a larger-than-usual number of rat deaths at the Hutart Parker & Company wharf on the eastern side of Darling Harbour. Dr. Thompson advised the City Council, who dispatched the marvellously titled official, the Chief Inspector of Nuisances, to see what was up at the wharf. This man spent two hours down there, collected three dead rats and caught four live specimens. The Board of Health would subject these rodents to the usual bacteriological and inoculation tests, though results wouldn't be in for a week or more. At 51 Sussex Street, just 200 yards south of the wharf, where the Chief Inspector of Nuisances went on his rat-catching mission, Captain Thomas Dudley conducted his sail-making business, T.R. Dudley & Company. Captain Tom employed some 40 people from these loft premises, which were above a warehouse used to store grain. Captain Tom had a wife, four grown daughters and a fine house in Dremoyne. He was well known in Sydney's yachting circles and was a respectable figure. Although discretion surely prevailed most of the time, Captain Tom's past also had to have come up now and again over cigars and cognac in club smoking rooms. Even if only so men who fancied themselves as tough sea salts might once again debate the eternal question, what would you have done? See, Captain Thomas Dudley, family man, sailmaker of Sussex Street and upstanding gent of Sydney Town, could once have laid claim to the title of most notorious figure in the Western world. Thomas Riley Dudley was born in 1853 and raised in Tolsbury, England. At the age of 10, he followed his fathers and brothers to sea and took work on a fishing boat. A portrait of him found at Ancestry.com.au shows he grew into a pale-skinned, freckle-faced fellow with red hair and a big red beard. By the time he turned 31, Tom was Captain Tom, at least when it came to yachts, and he was in demand as a skipper for hire. In April 1884, he was offered a job that would be his most challenging yet. 
A politician named Jack Want from New South Wales in Australia had bought a 50-foot, 30-tonne yacht called Minionette and he wanted Captain Tom to sail it to Sydney for him. The voyage would be long and it had come with considerable dangers, but the job would pay so well that when Captain Tom arrived in Sydney, he'd be able to buy a house, send for his family and they could all start a new life in Australia. Leaving his wife and babies at home, Captain Tom set out from Southampton on the 19th of May. His crew comprised Ned Brooks and Edwin Stevens, both seasoned sailors, and an inexperienced 17-year-old cabin boy named Richard Parker. Mignonette crossed the equator on the 17th of June, and all seemed to be well with the world. Two weeks later, Mignonette was hit by a gale and huge seas. On the 5th of July, massive waves washed over the boat and smashed in one side so badly it was clear it was going to sink. Captain Tom ordered the crew to abandon ship. They had just five minutes in which to escape and during this frenzy of activity, the 14-foot lifeboat was damaged and young Richard Parker lost the emergency freshwater keg overboard. With Minionette sunk deep in Davy Jones's locker, Captain Tom and his three crew were in a tiny boat in gigantic seas. Despite being hammered by these waves, the men managed to fashion a sea anchor, plug the holes with flotsam, and bail out using wooden cases that held a sextant and chronometer. Surviving this ordeal, they now faced another. They had no water, half a dozen tins of preserved vegetables for food, and they were hundreds of miles from the African coast in a part of the ocean where shipping was rare. On the fourth day, they caught a turtle. They ate it and drank its blood over the next week. After that, they had nothing to eat and only a little water to drink that they caught on oilskins during rain showers. These resourceful men made a sail from two shirts and used an oar as a mast, but it wasn't going to do them any good. They'd die, insane, of thirst, hunger and exposure long before they made land. Then Captain Tom suggested, suggested a way that three of them could survive. And that was if one of them died and was eaten. Captain Tom suggested that they draw lots to see who should be sacrificed. Ned Brooks said he didn't want to kill himself or anyone else. Edwin Stevens and Richard Parker said nothing. While no one embraced Captain Tom's suggestion, the fact remained all four of them were dying. Richard Parker, so the story goes, around this time in desperation drank seawater and then lapsed into a coma. The next day, Captain Tom and Edwin Stevens decided that the boy was done for. If they killed him now, his lifeblood would flow rather than be clotted and his flesh would still be fresh. They might live yet if they drank and ate Richard Parker. If they didn't, they'd die and he'd die anyway. So this would be murder by necessity. With Ned Brooks hiding his face and refusing to take part, Captain Tom ordered Edwin Stevens to be ready to hold the boy's legs if he should struggle. Captain Tom then prayed for forgiveness before approaching Richard Parker with his penknife. The boy, who'd been semi-conscious for nearly a day now, came around and gasped something like, What? Me, sir? Captain Tom slit his throat. In a frenzy, the men caught the boy's blood in an instrument case and drank it before butchering him and feasting on his still warm organs. 
The following day, heavy rain fell and over the ensuing days, the men, who now had plenty of fresh water, ate Richard Parker bit by bit until there was very little left of him. On the 28th of July, the men spotted a German ship and its crew rescued them. In the grizzly dinghy, the Germans saw what remained of Richard Parker and gave him a sea burial. From the very first, Mignonette survivors told the truth of what they'd done and why, believing the unwritten law known as the custom of the sea justified their actions. At the inquest, Ned Brooks was acquitted, but Captain Tom and Edwin Stevens were ordered to stand trial. And that trial was a sensation, covered at length and in graphic detail by newspapers all over the world. Given the Australian connection, Sydney newspapers were no exception, and you would have been hard-pressed to find someone, particularly in maritime circles, who didn't have an opinion on whether Captain Tom had been justified or not. The jury didn't think so, and, on the charge of murder, found both men guilty. The judge sentenced Captain Thomas Dudley and Edwin Stevens to hang by the neck until they were dead. Then, in December 1884, came the stunning reversal. Both men's death sentences had been commuted to just six months in prison. Despite this lucky break, Captain Tom still believed he was entirely innocent, and so he was bitter at having been tried, convicted, sentenced to hang, and then made to serve any jail time at all. There's a lot more to this story, and it's told in Neil Hansen's fascinating 1999 book, The Custom of the Sea. But for our purposes, what's important is that Captain Tom was freed on the 20th of May, 1885, and was so free to pursue his dream of putting England behind him and coming to Sydney with his family. They arrived in October, 1885. Today, the immigration of such an infamous character would create a media frenzy. Back then, though, the cannibal captain taking up residency in Sydney didn't merit a mention I've been able to find in any of the city's newspapers. This was no doubt a matter of good taste, but it also seems certain that tongues would have been wagging about the new arrival. Captain Tom's past didn't seem to affect his prospects, and he soon got work managing Pettigrew's Sail, Tent, Flag and Tarpaulin Company near the centre of the city. Captain Tom's wife, Philippa, had two more surviving children, and the family prospered in their house at Dremoyne, which had a slipway to the Parramatta River so that he could indulge his passion for yachting. Captain Tom was an industrious fellow. In 1891, he registered a patent for an improved stump grinder, and the following year lodged another for a water filter and cooler. He also embraced his new homeland by registering a trademark for his brand of oil skins that featured a kangaroo sitting on its haunches and holding a boomerang in its left paw. Next, Captain Tom set up his own business, T.R. Dudley & Company, taking as his headquarters that big loft near the wharves at 51 Sussex Street. Around Wednesday the 14th of February, when the Chief Inspector of Nuisances was catching rats 200 yards away, Captain Tom, who'd survived a hellish ordeal by doing the unthinkable before going on to live a decent, upstanding life half a world away, had a minor spill against a plank and hurt his abdomen. Four days later, on Sunday the 18th, his abdomen was still aching and he'd begun to feel feverish. Captain Tom struggled into work at the start of the week, but couldn't carry on and went home to Dremoyne. There, he was seen by three different doctors, who all professed themselves to be puzzled. 
Their patients seemed to have septic fever, which would be caused by blood poisoning, but the abdominal injury hadn't been severe enough to cause internal bleeding, and he had no other visible wounds. In any event, Captain Tom's condition didn't seem severe enough to warrant concern. But it should have, because he died suddenly on Thursday, the 22nd of February, 1900. So it was that the world's most famous cannibal became Australia's first confirmed victim of the bubonic plague. Though bereaved, his wife and children nevertheless had the presence of mind to tell the undertaker to place a notice in time for the following day's Sydney Morning Herald. The notice read, quote, The funeral of the deceased, Mr T.R. Dudley, late of Sussex Street, will leave his late residence, Cambridge Road, Dremoyne, tomorrow, Saturday, afternoon, 12 o'clock, for Croydon Station, thence to the necropolis. But none of that would happen. Captain Tom's abrupt death aroused concern among the doctors who'd seen him that he might have suffered the plague. So they contacted Dr Thompson, who inspected the body at the Dremoyne house. He found that the captain's glands were swollen and he removed them for inspection at the Board of Health. Captain Tom's Sussex Street business premises were put into quarantine and under police guard. Board of Health investigations questioned workers about rats and learned that Captain Tom had removed five rat corpses from the water closet just a few days before he took ill. This bathroom was connected via a defective pipe that discharged into the harbour. Board of Health investigations also showed that, like Arthur Payne, Captain Tom hadn't been aboard a ship that had docked from a foreign port. He'd been on land when he'd been bitten by a flea from a plague rat. Captain Tom's family and some of his employees, 17 people in all, were taken to North Head Quarantine Station. As for Captain Tom, his body was wrapped in material that had been soaked in a sterilising solution. He was then placed in a coffin and immersed in strong disinfectant. Then a jacket of sailcloth was wrapped around the coffin, which was then put inside another box. This was placed in a skiff and towed up the harbour as the sunset, and that night buried at, quote, unusual depth in a quarantine station cemetery in a grave officially known only as number 48. While all of this was happening on Saturday the 24th of February, another man was found to be infected. This was John Makins and he was a labourer at the Huddart Parker and Company store in Sussex Street, putting him in close proximity to the rat-infested wharf and to Captain Tom's business. John Makins had taken ill around the same time that Captain Tom had died and now the man had swelling under one arm and abdominal pains. The Murray Street Piermont home that he shared with his wife, two children and three others was under lockdown by three o'clock that afternoon and the victim and his contacts were on their way to the quarantine station. By the next morning, John Makins had a high fever and was delirious. Three days after that, he was dead. And by then, there was another case, a glebe merchant whose produce came from the Ground Zero wharves. Sydney's bubonic plague pandemic was underway. Dr Ashburton Thompson knew that the ad hoc killing of the rodents responsible might do more harm than good because scared surviving vermin would scatter to new suburbs and spread the pestilence. He thought that to beat back the Black Death would need a wholesale war on rats, with the public encouraged to take up arms by the provision of small rewards for the bodies of the enemy. As the Sydney Morning Herald reported on the 27th of February, quote, 
Preparations for the campaign, which is to be entered upon against the rats, especially those about the wharf, were commenced yesterday. The fiat has gone forth that the rats must die. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part one of the Forgotten Australia episode, The Plague of 1900. The second and final episode will be out next week, so make sure you're subscribed to get it as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could share it with anyone you think might be interested. For a daily dose of Australian history, check out my other show, Australia on This Day. Coming up this week, we'll be looking at our first female Olympic gold medal winner, the man who made a discovery that literally rewrote our history books, and the life and crimes of a particularly vicious razor gangster. Forgotten Australia and Australia on This Day are written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.